0: What happened to Rwanda can happen anywhere.
1: Whenever there's a state that uses extensive violence against its own citizens, particularly if it's favoring one segment of the society against others, creates a real alienation from the state. The Rwandan genocide is the most heavily adjudicated event in human history. Truth commissions are really just part of an ongoing effort to document the past and account for the past. There was a term within the Kinyarwanda language that had the same root as when you reset a broken bone. And so there was a concept within Rwandan culture of reconciliation, of of putting together things that have been broken. This concept of healing a nation is problematic in some ways. Transitional justice tries to heal states, but once states are broken, it's a hard process and you can never fully heal.
2: I'm Dan of Primary Source, and this is What Teachers Need to Know Africa Edition, the podcast that explores current events, history, and culture with an eye towards the complexity and humanity found across this vibrant and diverse continent. The creation of this podcast was made possible through support and collaboration with the African Study Center at Boston University. Will the 20th century be most remembered for its mass atrocities? These are the opening words to Between Vengeance and Forgiveness, written by the legal scholar, professor, and former dean of Harvard Law School, Martha Minow. Professor Minow concludes that genocide, violence, and persecution seen around the world during the century are in fact and tragically even, commonplace throughout history. The 20th century in this regard was not unique. What was unusual is what she calls the invention of new and distinctive legal forms of response. Across the globe throughout the latter half of the 20th century and into the 21st, societies as politically and culturally diverse as Ghana, Argentina, Sierra Leone, Namibia, South Africa, Rwanda, and beyond have responded to dictatorship, state-sanctioned violence, civil war, racial subjugation, and genocide with these newly invented and distinctive legal procedures. In the wake of collective trauma, these and many other societies have been forced to confront the pain and sorrow, the dysfunction and despair, Brought on by large scale persecution and victimization. And in the aftermath of such events, these societies, their politicians, their legal institutions, and their public have had to answer existential questions, seemingly unanswerable questions. Questions like How do we find justice? What even is justice? How do we remember our recent traumatic past? How can we heal? Can we ever really heal? Within these questions are universal human dilemmas playing out within the context of particular times and places, according to the realities of distinct cultures and histories. These dilemmas are about accountability, punishment, reconciliation, and truth. Each society forced to confront these questions and dilemmas in their own way has developed legal tools and processes meant to promote truth, reconciliation, healing, and remembrance. They've been crafted to avoid vengeance, retribution, suspicion, and unending fear. We're going to take a look at two African societies and the legal and cultural responses that emerged as they attempted to transition from states of subjugation and violence and move towards something different. We'll look to South Africa and its post-apartheid campaign for truth and reconciliation. We'll also examine the ways Rwanda emerged from its genocide through its own attempts at justice and accountability. Both of these countries, South Africa and Rwanda, present us with the possibilities and limitations of repair. They remind us that legal processes may be innovative and instructive, but that they are never actually panaceas, Capable of resolving all societal issues. And as we explore these two distinctive contexts for seeking truth, justice, and attempts at reconciliation, we'll encounter questions that are germane for other contexts, including the United States, where legacies and ongoing realities of inequality, oppression, and violence continue to require legal and cultural attempts at healing and remembrance. Let's start this exploration by learning about the emergence of the innovative legal processes described by Martha Minow before looking specifically at South Africa and Rwanda. We'll start by hearing from Professor Timothy Longman.
1: I'm Tim Longman, and I teach political science and international relations at Boston University. My research specialization is on Africa. I worked in Rwanda quite a bit, was there just before the genocide against the Tutsi in 1994, and then I went back as the head of the Human Rights Watch office there in 1995 and 1996. In the aftermath of the Second World War, when people began to learn about the Holocaust and the atrocities there, there was a push to promote some form of justice, Uh, the idea is that basically if you don't do anything when you have things like the Holocaust take place, then things like that will happen again. So there was uh, initial talk about using courts to hold people who committed atrocities accountable. And then the Cold War came along, and so that got kind of put on the shelf for a couple of decades. But beginning in the 1990s, there was a push again to think about accountability. But along with that focus on justice, there were cases where people began to say, well, there are other values that we need to rebuild after mass atrocity or authoritarian regimes. So out of those two things, trials and truth commissions, there's been a lot of discussion about promoting truth and reconciliation and justice as means for societies that have experienced trauma to begin to overcome that trauma this idea that you are trying to heal a society that's been broken, but also trying to bring back together individuals who have been broken from one another and to repair broken relationships, broken trust in government, a variety of things of that sort. But it's a complicated concept. But that concept of needing to rebuild societies after they've been ruptured is sort of at the core of what we usually mean by reconciliation. There's an area that's emerged really since the 1990s that we call transitional justice, where we think about what needs to happen for societies to rebuild after experiences of mass atrocities or authoritarian rule, It started with this idea of putting people on trial, but there's a range of options that have been used. And so we think about various ways that societies can reckon with their pasts. One of the key ideas is an idea of accountability. And so we have a lot of different mechanisms for accountability. There's judicial accountability where you put individuals on trial for atrocities. But there are other forms because often you know, the individuals are part of a system or a society that has been involved in supporting authoritarian rule. And just putting individuals on trials doesn't always get at that. So there are a variety of mechanisms that have been used to try to think about looking at the past and accounting for the past. Truth commissions are a means where you focus on trying to get at some sort of reliable record of the past that helps to create a sense of collective memory. That is, you get everybody in the society to come together and say, yes, this is really what happened. There are also things that are forms of accountability that aren't necessarily shaped around a sort of judicial model. So one of the focuses is on memorializing and commemorating events that have happened. There's a focus on helping to account for the past by recording it and by making it public so that it's not forgotten. And that also helps to create a collective memory. At the root of it all really is this concept of accountability, accounting for the past, accounting for past atrocities, which you know, can involve justice, it can involve truth-telling, it can involve shaping memory. Most scholars these days assume that the best response is probably some mix of these, that there's no single tool.
2: What exactly emerges from the work of truth commissions? What documents or artifacts are available to the public as a record, as a testament to these attempts at transitional justice?
1: Truth commissions have different kinds of reports that they produce. There's no really single model. The thing about truth commissions is they usually are official documents that come from the government as an official stamp of approval, and then we kind of build on that.
2: Let's now turn to South Africa and examine the circumstances that led to its Truth and Reconciliation Commission.
1: South Africa was a settler colony where there were populations that came from Europe and occupied land and drove people off of the land. It's you know similar to the United States or Australia or New Zealand in that way. There were a range of racially discriminatory policies, racist policies that were put into place. And these built over time and became more draconian. In 1948, there was an election that brought a particularly nationalistic and racist party to power a national party. And they implemented a system called apartheid. Apartheid means the separateness. And the argument that was at the base of apartheid was that society would work best if these groups were kept as completely separate as possible. It also involved a system that basically treated the African residents not as residents of South Africa, but as citizens of their ethnic group. As a result, you got a real growth in inequality that was quite severe. The apartheid state provided a subsidized existence for all whites so that they lived well in large houses in a style that's very much like people do in Europe or the United States, whereas blacks were... Paid very poorly, had limited opportunities, given poor education and pushed into the worst land and the worst territory where they had inadequate housing and often didn't have electricity or water or other things. This was by design because the wealth of the white population was built upon the impoverishment of the black population. And in order to enforce this, it took a lot of violence. Anybody who objected to the apartheid laws could be arrested, tortured and often killed. Much of it was done in secret, much of it was done to instill terror in people. People often didn't know what had happened to their father or their son or their sister who was taken away at night or picked up on a street and never heard from again. In 1976, there was a protest against reforms to the school system for blacks that the black population objected to, and school children went on strike. The government troops opened fire on school children, and a number were killed, and that really marked the beginning of the end for apartheid, because after that, rather than just accepting the crackdown on the part of the government, protests spread everywhere.
2: Just how did apartheid come to an end in South Africa? What did the end of legal racial segregation, discrimination, and injustice mean for the country as it attempted to address these historical
1: wrongdoings and emerge anew? South Africa had a transition, and that was a negotiated transition. So even though the African National Congress had an armed wing, there was never much of a civil war in South Africa. Part of that agreement from the National Party, they said basically they were not going to turn over power if they would be thrown in jail for having enforced apartheid. And so the agreement that was put into place was that there would not be judicial accountability. And That's really where the truth and reconciliation commission came out of. In April of 1994, elections were held. There were multi-party elections that uh, inaugurated a new political system, and Nelson Mandela, the head of the ANC, then became the president of South Africa. Simply holding an election doesn't wipe away that legacy. There's an alienation from the state that takes a long time to rebuild
2: If elections alone could not resolve people's alienation, what did that mean for the goals and aspirations of the Truth and Reconciliation
1: Commission? The parliament passed a law creating the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it was very intentionally designed to try to heal the nation. The idea behind the TRC was that violence related to the struggle for and against apartheid would be put on the table and exposed, and therefore everybody would know what had happened. It was uh, adopted by the parliament, and so it has a certain weight and gravitas that suggests this is national policy. The commission itself was set up to represent all the different parts of society. There were mixed-race colored representatives, and then the cases that they dealt with really raged. The vast majority were cases of state-sponsored violence. What the TRC required for people to get amnesty so they wouldn't be put on trial was an open confession. People needed to come forward and tell fully about what they did. The South African version you know, involved public hearings that got a lot of publicity. There was a lot of television coverage and they produced five long reports that were documenting what happened. But even with those reports, there were things that were left out. The very lengthy TRC report from South Africa really focused on individual violations and didn't do as good a job of looking at sort of systemic problems. One of the main goals with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission though, was to help inform the white population About what happened in South Africa. Because many of the whites, because there was such segregation, they never saw the brutality of apartheid. They didn't go into the townships. They didn't see people being arrested. They didn't see people being tortured. And so, one thing that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission tried to show was that, in fact, apartheid was brutal. It was not a nice system meant to promote African well being. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Sometimes the idea of these transitional justice things is to help spread knowledge that people don't have so that you can then move forward with a common understanding of the past.
2: Did the TRC succeed in accomplishing all of its intended goals? Was this commission enough
1: to heal all the wounds of apartheid in South Africa? When we talk about transitional justice, the whole focus really is on thinking about what is it that societies need to do to overcome the past? One of the realities is that people who have experienced violence at the hands of the state, whose family members have been killed or who've themselves been tortured or who've had their education cut short or have been put into inadequate housing because of this, they need to confront the past in some ways. I mean, there's an idea that people carry trauma with them. And in order to overcome trauma, you have to provide some healing. I'm skeptical about just how much healing can do there are absolutely limits to the degree to which you can repair damage when uh, your family members are killed you, you can't bring them back to life the best you can do is get some comfort that justice has been served and that perhaps there's some compensation that can help you rebuild your life it's hard to overcome this past because the violence that people experience damages them as individuals and damages their society and their social relations We try to use tools like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to overcome that, but there are limits to what it can do. One of the failings of the TRC was because it focused on individual perpetrators, it didn't focus on the system, and so most white families could say, well, thank God my family wasn't involved in the police services. What terrible things those awful people did. They didn't really necessarily come to think that, oh, this was done in my name, and my prosperous lifestyle is built on that
2: not all legal campaigns following enormous societal trauma take the same shape. The nature of the suffering, the intensity of the violence, and the condition of society all shape the legal processes and goals of those involved in the search for justice. In Rwanda, the wounds of the nation were the wounds of genocide. The nature of accountability in a post-genocidal society brings about a different calculus and the efforts to balance forgiveness with punishment. We'll continue learning from Professor Tim Longman, but we'll also hear from Claude Kaitari, a survivor of the genocide in Rwanda. As an educator, Claude brings his lived experiences, his personal losses, and the memory of the events of genocide into his work with students.
0: I am Claude Kaitari. My identity is Rwandan. and raised until I was a teenager. The personal connection is being a survivor of the 1994 genocide against Tutsi. The country lost over a million people, including a large number of my family members, mainly a matriarch of our family, a grandmother who was approaching 90 years was killed. So that's a big connection to the country. I can never detach from
2: Let's hear from Tim again about Rwanda and the historical circumstances that brought about the genocide there in the 1990s.
1: Rwanda has two major ethnic groups, the Hutu, who are estimated to make about 85% of the population, and the Tutsi who are about 15%. Pre-colonial period, the Tutsi had more political power. They weren't really ethnic groups in the way we traditionally think of them because they spoke the same language. They lived in integrated communities. They just had different social roles. We think that Tutsi sort of meant leader or somebody with clients, and Hutu meant a follower or somebody who was a client. When Europeans came in, Germans first, and then Belgians after the First World War, they came into Rwanda with... The ideas about race that were very popular at that time, social Darwinism, that assumed that all the populations of the world could be divided into groups that had clear boundaries and that were ranked hierarchically. They assumed that the Tutsi, who they saw as ruling the country, were a superior group. These ideas of the Europeans that were not based on fact in any way became reality through policy. And the result of colonialism was to create a really sharp divide between Hutu and Tutsi. When Rwanda gained independence in 1962, it was with an almost entirely Hutu government. So the power dynamics had been flipped. So Tutsi became an oppressed minority, albeit one that still had some wealth and power and education. But the Hutu took over all political power. Ethnic tensions remained within Rwanda, but in 1990... A democracy movement emerged within Rwanda, as it did in many African countries. A dictator who had been in power since 1973 uh, had worn out his welcome, and people wanted change. And so there were a number of people who began to push for this. And at the same time, Tutsi, who'd been living outside the country since the early 1960s, wanted the right to come back to Rwanda. And so they formed a rebel group called the Rwanda Patriotic Front that started to attack Rwanda. The combination of internal dissent and an army outside attack in the country pushed the government to implement some political reforms, but at the same time the government used that attack by Tutsi to undermine the critics of the regime and to undermine opposition parties. And so they began to use a lot of anti Tutsi rhetoric and said, if there's poverty in the country, if there are problems, it's because of the Tutsi. And they've got this army that wants to come back and attack you and reinstate the kind of colonialism that they had in place before. On April 6, 1994, the president for Wanda, Juvenal Habyarimana was shot down as he was coming back into Kigali. And that served as a spark for his supporters to launch an attack on people who opposed them. They had lists of opposition politicians to kill, of civil society activists, human rights activists, journalists, and others, and then also prominent Tutsi to kill. And so for several days, they focused on that, and the world sort of reacted by saying, oh, look at these savage Africans and what they're doing again. As a result, the government knew that it could get away with it, and so they expanded the violence, and they saw Tutsi as a threat to their regime. They expanded the violence to focus on Tutsi throughout the country, and it became a genocide where the intent really was to wipe out the Tutsi once and for all so that they could never try to fight their way back to power. We estimate that about 75 to 80 percent of the Tutsi population was killed in this violence somewhere from 500,000 to 600 to 700,000 people was killed. We don't know the exact number, it's you know because of the chaos. But in the end, the people who carried out the genocide failed in their efforts to secure their power. The Rwanda Patriotic Front renewed its attack on the country and ultimately took complete control in July of 1994 and drove the genocidal regime out of the country along with a large portion of the population who went into exile. Since 1994, Rwanda has been governed ...by the Rwanda Patriotic Front, which was this largely Tutsi rebel group that fought its way to power.
2: How did the attempts at justice in Rwanda after the genocide take shape? How did this differ from what transpired in South Africa?
1: In contrast to South Africa, where you had a negotiated settlement, in Rwanda, you had complete victory by the Rwanda Patriotic Front. They were able to set the terms for accountability and argued that, you know, this was a genocide, it was terrible, and therefore people have to be held accountable. They really opted for maximal justice. They started with arresting lots and lots of people under accusations of genocide participation. There was a process of trials that was going along very slowly. It was estimated that it would take over 100 years to try everyone. They decided they needed some alternative, so they reached back into the Rwandan past to look at something called gachacha, which was a traditional dispute resolution mechanism that was done at the local level. So they adapted that. They elected local non-professional people in the community to create courts that would then hear genocide cases. There were tens of thousands of Gachacha judges. And in the end, there were over 1.9 million cases that involved 1.1 million individuals. When you figure that at the time of the genocide, Rwanda was less than 8 million in its population, and half of that was children, you can see that a massive portion of the population was put on trial in Gachacha. The initial impetus for creating gachacha was to speed up trials, but as it was being implemented, a number of government officials said, well, it's it, because it's going to be at the local level and have these public hearings, it'll be like the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa. And people talked about it as restorative justice, a system of justice that would help heal the community. But in practice, it was actually punitive justice.
2: The cases of South Africa and Rwanda call attention to the legal and cultural attempts to transition in the aftermath of profound suffering and violence. Are these processes enough to heal nations and repair societies?
1: There definitely was a lot of talk about healing the nation. You know, there was an idea that you can't go back to life until people have been punished for genocide crimes. The genocide really was horrific, and there needed to be some form of accountability. Gachaca was presented as a means sort of short of putting everyone on trial that allowed the communities to come together. They talked about it as a truth-telling process because the communities would talk about what happened in their community and come up with an account of the past. But it was still very much a court case that put people in jail. It was different. The types of issues that places like Rwanda and South Africa are dealing with are not disconnected from The same kinds of processes of debating memory that we have in the West, in the United States. In fact, Rwanda and Burundi in some ways have done a better job of confronting their past of violence than we have in the United States. We have had some attempts by people to talk about the history of slavery and Jim Crow and the massacres of Native Americans. And there's a lot of resistance to that. Realizing our common humanity and realizing that, really, we struggle with the same issues in a lot of ways.
2: We're going to hear from Claude Katari again. Claude is a survivor of the genocide in Rwanda, who has dedicated much of his life to working with students as a resource speaker, visiting schools throughout New England. Whether it's 20 students in a classroom or many more in an auditorium, Claude confronts the past and helps students navigate the emotionally evocative realities of studying some of the most inhumane parts of human existence. Let's turn to Claude and learn from him why he confronts his past, why he shares it with students, and what he hopes to accomplish when visiting schools and making this part of the human saga part of the curriculum.
0: I have a mythos or a motto I use of raising awareness in hopes of minimizing ignorance.
2: What does it mean for Claude as an individual to work through his experiences as a genocide survivor through his work with students? Why does he teach about the very genocide that he survived?
0: An eyewitness is the best reporter of any event no matter how big or small. I don't want to shock students, you know, but I want to give them the harsh realities. I have areas that do not go into too much, areas that will trigger PTSD for me, but I can talk about what I've seen on the street, or I go to the market. When I see the Mauritius taking ideas from people, it just gets tough. If I talk about my grandmother, for example, she was my matriarch of our family. And that was the last uh, mother figure I had. To put a brief ring, it's a tough, uh, tightrope to work.
2: As an educator, Claude tells his story. He also incorporates artifacts from his life in Rwanda to show students the world he knew intimately in his youth. So what tangible items does Claude bring into his teaching?
0: Art. Love art. Uh, The ones I love to bring to classroom is the wood carving. I possess two wood masks. They are resemblance of a father and mother. And usually it's that's after I share the story of losing my grandmother. My mother had passed already, that's why my grandmother was so special to me. She was raising my siblings and I. But those two wood masks, I still have them, and I'll bring them to classrooms. For me, it's very powerful. My late father's identification card, although that's a document, It goes deep because it's the old idea which will have my grandparents' name in it, my mother's names in there, and then a list of his children, me being on the top. But that idea is very important, not only because it has my grandparents in it and my siblings in it and and myself, but it is uh, something that could be, the original one my dad had could be a death sentence for him. Because we say his ethnicity, photographs, uh, those are key, especially when one I have is the only one with my late mother in it. When I was about nine years old, that one is like the whole full immediate family picture I have with my siblings and dad and mom.
2: Professor Longman introduced us to Gachacha and the role it played in Rwanda in the years after the genocide. For Claude, Gachacha is something that his family was intimately a part of. So, what does gachacha mean to Claude?
0: After the genocide against the Tutsi, Rwanda had so many perpetrators in prisons. Gachacha really meaning judging in front of the yard, like in the grass. And then the elders do the judging. They are wise people, they are elders. This connection to me is very strong because my father became a Gachacha judge. It was controversial, as you can imagine, not only for international community and human rights activists, even for survivors, because some of them were not ready to forgive. But the Gachacha one helped with the reconciliation. Seeing that traditional court, how it worked, it gave me some type of relief created some type of trust in the community again. Not 100%, not even 50%, I don't think, but from zero, even if it was 2%, I think it was better.
2: When visiting schools, Claude brings his eyewitness account of genocide into classrooms. In recent years, he's participated in student trips to Rwanda. What does it mean for him to travel with students and to be part of this type of pedagogical experience? of remembering such a traumatic past.
0: What it does is um, shows them my experience firsthand. We will go to memorial sites where there's a cemetery there. The big one is in Tigari, the capital of Rwanda. It's called Tigari Genocide Memorial Center, where a quarter of a million victims are buried there. And I'll see my family's last name on the wall of the deceased. The last name will invoke something. That's my uncle, aunties, cousins. So, for the students who are coming from Massachusetts, some of these students have never left New England. they have only been to Africa. Majority were going to a foreign land, so they could see my perspective better. It's very impactful to do that kind of travel. For students, I know they took out uh, more by going to Rwanda. —
2: Claude has been working with students for years now. So what does he see as the long-term influence that he's had on students who have heard him tell his story? —
0: You have a choice of being an upstander um, for the defenseless, which my people want, to be able to be an upstander for the marginalized people. I get the joy and hope from that, mostly hope that hopefully the students, they can be an upstander. I think that's the key one. As a human in general, I don't even have to be in the classroom to advocate for that, of standing up for your fellow mankind. So that gives me hope. The high school kids I talk to their human rights activists, doctors and educators, one of them remember me telling them, To be an upstander, I feel satisfied. I feel like I've done something that fulfills my ethos.
2: Ethos. Claude holds on to a personal ethos as an educator. For countries seeking transitional justice, they're also adhering to a certain ethos. To varying degrees, they succeed and struggle through the tumultuous process of healing without inflicting new pain. Remembering without preventing society from moving forward towards a healthier tomorrow, and exacting justice without resorting to vengeance. South Africa and Rwanda are two examples of society that have used politics, law, and public proceedings to chart a path forward. They're two examples of the inability to fully account for and address all of a society's pain, grievances, and problems through commissions and trials alone. Yet they provide concrete pathways and frameworks for societies such as our own with unaddressed legacies of violence and oppression. Despite and because of their possibilities and problems, they provide a starting point for teachers and students alike who are grappling with questions of memory, justice, and the actions and behaviors of those who harness their civic agency to address the wrongs of yesterday for an improved tomorrow. That's it for today's episode. What Teachers Need to Know Africa Edition is a production of Primary Source, an education nonprofit dedicated to bringing the world into classrooms through professional development and curriculum. To learn more about Primary Source and to explore our podcasts and our other resources further, visit www.primarysource.org. Thanks to the African Studies Center at Boston University, whose support and collaboration made the creation of this podcast possible. To learn more about the Center, visit www.bu.edu slash Africa. And to learn more about the Center's Teaching Africa Outreach Program, visit www.bu.edu slash Africa slash Outreach.
1: I'm Dan from Primary Source. Thanks again for listening.